is a, a foundational transformation we see happening in the economy. DeFi and blockchain are redefining business, economy, and ultimately society. What's up, everybody? Uh, how are you doing? This is our brand new podcast, Episode Zero, where we talk about all things DeFi, blockchain, and uh, Web 3.0. How is that changing uh, technology, society, business, and ultimately eco our economy? So I'm your co-host, Jeremy Ullman, alongside my awesome good friend, Megan Guy. What's up, Megan? Hey, how you doing, Jeremy? Yeah. Uh, we're super, super excited to be here. Part of the impetus, I think, for starting this was we felt like we were seeing all kinds of really interesting stories about how blockchain and crypto were starting to transform industries outside of the hot takes and and you know, stories maybe that you're seeing on the front page of the newspapers. And we wanted to really bring those to light um, because this is a, a foundational transformation we see happening in the economy. And we wanna make sure everyone's stories get told. Uh, and on that note, I think we're incredibly excited to have our first episode zero guest here with us. Uh, Jeremy, you have known Roman for a really long time. So why don't you kick us off with yeah, the intro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Roman, I, I don't know, I think it's been almost a decade you and I met, um, but Roman Leal's been um, a really interesting background, right? So Roman, Roman's a friend of mine who's basically spanned first Wall Street, right? Worked at Goldman. You'll hear a little bit about the, the stories there. Then he sort of sat um, and worked in, in traditional tech. So he was at Corp, at PayPal for a long time, and then now running a venture fund. I think it's going to be really fun to talk about. What's up, Roman? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. L l you know, happy to be, uh, you know, guest number zero uh, here and talking about things that I love. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll touch on uh, all things blockchain, crypto, but also things around uh, the investment world, diversity, inclusion, and, and ultimately all the impact Impact stuff that that that's happening in DeFi land. Uh, so happy to kick this off with you guys. Sort of, sort of, you know, as a way of also giving you an intro and context of the way I look at at, at blockchain. It's 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 all full circle, right? So you know, my I remember I recall my family. My first sort of introduction to the investment world, or at least the arbitrage world, was when I was ten years old. So my my parents both immigrated to the U.S. and we were, grew up in Los Angeles, right, in an area where. Uh, Spanish was all they, they needed. They never learned English because frankly, they just didn't have to. And so I remember them taking me to the local Western Union and my father saying, hey, translate these documents and at, tell me how much they're charging me. And I remember going down line by line and saying, hey, it's like 10% for the Western Union wire back home to you know to Mexico in, in my father's case. Uh, it's like 3% for a, a money order. And we just went down the, the line and it ended up being 22%. So every two weeks, from my father's paycheck, you know, it was 22% going to these fee structures, right? So all these different fees. And I remember him getting so upset, you know, and, and saying, fix this. Um, I was 10 years old, right? So I said, you know, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what to do. And so my father said, well, you know, you know English, so like you can figure it out. And so, um, and that was the logic behind this. So for the, la in the next couple of weeks, I would literally go and, you know, my community in, in Los Angeles, um, for better or for worse, there were, you know, there were like six or, or seven of these, like, you know, payday lenders slash uh, check cashers uh, in every intersection. So I would go into one and say, hey, how much do you charge? For this. And I uh, was able to take it down to twelve percent. So twenty-two going to twelve percent was like it's still a pretty high fee, but that meant so much to my family, right? And I realized just the the, the power of education, the power of you know um, sort of figuring out the the arbitrage opportunities just within your own sort of zip code. And I think subconsciously I've been on this quest to discover sort of ways of of fixing that. Like my father asked me when I was ten, and I couldn't, and I just you know I've been looking and looking for alternatives. So you know, fast forwarding a lot, but when I was at Goldman and I got the chance to cover uh, fintech 
uh, it was the fintech analyst there uh, and covering all the publicly traded stocks. So, you know, the Visa's, the MasterCards, the, the merchant acquirers of the world, and luckily the, you know, the Western Union and MoneyGrams of the world. So that was the full circle moment when I saw, when I first heard about uh, Bitcoin from one of my colleagues, actually at Goldman, who, uh, who started trading it. This was now uh, 2010. And, and I said, I, I, want to, I want to learn more about this. And as I started to really understand what it meant for the free flow of value and, and the fee structure of the world that's been built over the last, you know, five, six decades in, in terms of payments, payment rails and money transfer rails, I instantly just, I remember that story of when I was 10 and I said, this was it. I wish I'd had this to offer my father when I was 10. And, you know, I'm sure we'll go into what, what the implications were, but that's sort of the context of how I, you know, I look at the world of crypto. Take me through a little bit of the Goldman story on like how you just like first touched crypto at Goldman in what was that original like point? Was that 2010, 2011? It's pretty early. Yeah, uh, 2010. And uh, so that's when I, so I was, uh, I was hosting, uh, you know, uh, a couple of uh, conference series for investors uh, on all like the innovative and disruptive trends that we saw in, in fintech. And so I decided to host a conference call on Bitcoin. And this was uh, late 2010, early 2011, uh, when I had Tony Gallippi, who at that point was the CEO of, the, and, and he's still called under CEO of BitPay um, to talk about what this meant uh, for just traditional payment processing fees, the interchange fees, the merchant acquiring fees. Uh, and so he, we, you know, we spoke at length about that. And I think I probably had one conversation before that conference call, but it was in that conference call that I truly understood the model and the opportunity we had, you know, in the payments landscape. And so I wanted to do a follow-up report and I wrote something like, you know, the quick key takeaways of, of the report, but I was, you know, again, like now that you know the lens of what I look at there, I was particularly excited about what this meant for, for the payments ecosystem. The headline was something like riding the Bitcoin rails or something, right? So it was along those lines. And, and, um, and I talked about, you know, what this potentially meant for everyone downstream, particularly, you know, the, the issue of processors and merchants and merchant processors that have sort of tagged on all these fees, uh, but also how, you know, the opportunity to send money uh, from one area of the world to another of the world and receive it just as fast as you receive email. I mean, that's the, the problem is the premise of this uh, would challenge even the networks, right? It would challenge even the most innovative of the fintech companies at that point, which were companies like PayPal that were, you know, sort of riding the secular uh, shift to uh, uh, more and more internet money or more internet transactions. Uh, because if you looked at any of these companies' financial statements, which I did all the time, right, uh, at Nauseam, uh, that was my job. And so I saw that the biggest chunk of profits came from this thing called cross-border payments. And what if you had an infrastructure that allowed you to send money instantly at virtually no cost or low cost? So I said, this is pretty much, you know, a, a threat to anyone in the payments ecosystem. And I think that I laid that out in this report. It took about a week before I got a call uh, and it was a slap <laughs> on the hand, but it was a pretty, you know, hard slap on the hand. Uh, because it was Wait, and, and who called? Was it Lloyd Blankfein or... <laughs> You're naming CEOs on episode zero already? Wow. Yeah, you know, so, yeah I, won't, I won't name names. I think this person knows you know, who, who you are. Know, I'm sure it, it even came above, above, you know, two or three layers above that person. Uh, but um, the conversation was around, look, I, I think we need to make sure that we 
not putting Goldman Sachs' name on, on some uh, infrastructure that's being used for you know, black market, uh, you know, all illicit activities. And so, because th- that was sort of, back, back then, we were still wrestling with a lot of those negative headlines. I think Mount Gox had just uh, occurred. Um, or, and so, so it was a pretty, there was like a lot of negative, uh, you know, news around around Bitcoin at that time. Uh, and then not three months later, uh, I, I mean, in, in a very quick time frame. Uh, and, and I'm, and I'm kind of like jumping over, you know, a lot of the personal implications that I had of like my boss's boss's boss calling me. Uh, I remember coming home and, and, and basically working on my resume that day. Right. So it was, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, but three months later, uh, you know, I think it's when Tim Draper and Mark Andreessen and all these, you know, Fred Wilson came out and, and sort of, uh, very well-respected, well-known, well-known names came out and defended, uh, or champion crypto at that point. I mean, they were the early champions from the investment world uh, that I think the sentiment shifted. And so it shifted so much that within a period of three months, I actually was called on to collaborate to, uh, on a, on a uh, sort of company-wide report. And that report was called All About Bitcoin. And you can still Google it, still find it, and my name will be there. And I'm still the payments guy within the the, um, the report. But it was a uh, you know, 60 plus page report where we looked at it from a commodity standpoint, a currency standpoint, um, you know, what it meant versus the bond market, what it meant versus, you know, sort of the existing uh, publicly traded market. And then obviously what, what, what I thought it meant for uh, for payments and remittances at that point. So, for, I mean, it, that was that was quite a well read. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's, so that's wild. It's, um, I don't know if it was the first or it was one of the first, right, um, you know, times that, that there was an actual Wall Street analyst covering crypto, let's call it in 2010 timeframe, which is wild, right? Literally 10 plus years ago, um, see how much the markets evolved then. You know, so Goldman now has a, a crypto desk, right? Like, and then you have all these other institutions that are um, are, are now coming along, right? Like, it's not a, you know, might be, it's it's almost a necessity. So how do you guys kind of both think, think about, um, you know, if you're an institution now, whether you're Goldman or you're, you know, uh, Fidelity or you're any of the, these folks who really built their kind of bank, right, on being ahead of the curve, both on the technology and the finance side. What, what do you think about now if you're Goldman or if you're any of these other folks, um, you know, where the, the market's now real? You, you know, I think at that point, there were still uh, just a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, uncertainty, but also, uh, you know, we didn't know what the regulatory landscape was going to look like. We still don't know a lot of it. <laughs> so, so remember back then, it was really the Wild Wild West, right? Uh, people were sort of trading in it, but uh, you know, what were the tax implications of that? You know, um, I remember even submitting a, um, uh, an approval to allow me to buy, you know, my first Bitcoin uh, in 2011. And, and, you know, there was just a misunderstanding. It, it was just so complicated. But what, what was this? And was this something that was allowed that it needed compliance check or not? So there was just, we were just learning so much. About yeah. Is it a security? Yeah. Right, right. Or, or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or currency or, you know, so, uh, but, but what, what was fascinating was, you know, I think there was, because I was part of the, you know, fintech team, which was in the umbrella of sort of TMT, right? Technology, medium, telecom, the, where, where a lot of the activity was happening, a lot of the innovation was happening. We had just kind of witnessed, you know, this is back in 2010, right? So we, we had witnessed a full decade of like cloud, right? The the shift to cloud, right? And, you know, the decade before that, we were facing a lot of similar question to what I think we're facing now in blockchain, right? Which was, are people really going to, are businesses really going to adopt cloud, right? Is it going to be 10% of the businesses, 50% of the businesses, 90% of the businesses? Uh, is it going to be across all sectors? Or back then there was a thinking that, well, this may not work. Work for financial services. It may not work for health services because of the sensitivity of the data, of data privacy, and, and all these concerns. I 
still think we were debating that back then. And I think we look fast forward now with the advent of private clouds, hybrid clouds, it's touched every sector, right? And sort of like uh, with, with, the, with the pandemic, it kind of showed no matter what industry you're, you're in or sector you're in, you need to have a cloud strategy. Um, I kind of feel like we're entering that phase in blockchain today, right? Where a lot of these banks are thinking, yeah, I don't know if I truly believe in this or not, but I, we should have a strategy. You know, it feels like that's where we are sort of headed in terms of the conversation. But back then, yeah, it was just, we we're just learning. Oh, absolutely. I think though, the key is we have to make sure we don't replicate a lot of the mistakes in the system we have today, right? And so it's kind of the great irony that this democratizing force that's supposed to provide access to those that haven't had access so far, you know, I think I saw a statistic recently, 77% of NFT sales have all been among and, and two men with the profits accruing just to male creators. And so, you know, some of this is a technology problem, but a lot of it is a people problem too, right? And a community problem. And, and the way that we define and set up some of those social norms, I think, is every bit as important as the technology that's underlying um you know, the evolution of these new products. Yeah, the dog believes. The dog is definitely a believer in that. <laughs> You're very upset when we start talking yeah. about it. <laughs> it's our number one issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, yeah. well cer certainly that that's an area, right? And like, Roman, you were talking about this. You know, the, the financial system like leaves behind folks, right? So um, whether it's business models or capital structures, right? There's there's a have and a have not. And I guess in the most um, utopian version of, of decentralized finance, that's certainly, um, you know, I think a hope and a dream, right? Um, there's an area, whether it's cross-border or otherwise, where, where it can play a role. Um, and I think, didn't you, you ended up joining PayPal at some point, right? Like kind of thinking along those lines, maybe a top tier tech company, right? Can can have a have a, have a bigger hand in democratizing financial services. So like, I, I'm curious what the insider view of going from Wall Street kind of first trying to bring, you know, this crazy democratizing financial force to Wall Street. And then all of a sudden, like you move over to like big tech. What was the experience at big tech? Was it um, as democratizing as Megan's hoping? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Did it feel like big tech yeah. at the time? <laughs> I got to tell you, the first thing I did uh, was I bought my first Bitcoin when I moved when I went to PayPal. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to go through the compliance, uh, you know, uh, hoops anymore. And so uh, that was my first kind of foray into really, really owning the, the digital asset. But, you know, I joined PayPal and really a lot of the, the tail end of my career, Goldman, was uh, looking at some of this sort of the new breed of fintechs that were coming out. My, you know, personally, what resonated with me were, were all these sort of next generation financial services for the underbanked or the underbanked banked, right? Um, uh, so I remember, you know, uh, taking companies like Netspend Public, you know, working on the uh, Green Dot uh, sort of transactions, uh, some of the pioneers that figured out, well, I mean, you know, if you're under bank account, how can you buy something on Amazon.com, right? Like your computer doesn't take cash. And so like, solutions like that were really intriguing to me. Uh, but there was a whole new breed coming out. Lending Cub uh, was coming out, uh, you know, Prosper Marketplace. And so when I went to PayPal, um, really what I was attracted to was the ability to work with all these next generation financial services companies that we could sort of try to integrate Um in the middle of my of my tenure there, um, I discovered there was a blockchain team being created, and this was the team that had uh, the co-founders had co-founded a company called Ruby Coins, and so they were really early in this other you know uh, digital payment hurdle, which was if you were in a mobile phone context and you were playing a video game, right, and you wanted to sort of buy the sword to kill the troll at the end of the at the end of the level. Uh, 
how would you do it back then? So now it's, we're taking it for granted. You just sort of buy it within the context, right? But back then, it was a problem to be solved. And so uh, it was the first sort of gateway created for this digital uh, environment. So it was digital payment for digital goods. Uh, and so that company was called Rubycoins, got it, gets acquired by PayPal. The two co-founders go into PayPal. You know, Jim and Nas are the two co-founders, brilliant individuals. Um, and they are they're the backbone of the initial sort of blockchain team at PayPal, you know, they figured PayPal wanted to do something in blockchain. Again, we were still learning a lot back then, but it made sense to put a digital payment in a, you know, the digital payments hub for digital goods, right? Just all, it was, let's just keep it all digital. And so um, I quickly tagged tag team on uh, with those two individuals uh, and we said, hey, you know, let's, uh, let's create the team. And so I was sort of, uh, I wasn't officially on a strategy team, but I was more like a BD person at that point because I went out with Jim and tried to figure out who can we integrate uh, uh, what technology can we integrate that makes sense at PayPal? And so we launched really the first integration that PayPal did, uh, which was with Coinbase, BitPay, and I think it was OKCoin was the third. And so it was implementing now, basically, you know, the digital payments hub now, if you were playing a game, you can choose to buy any digital good um, using your, you know, your Visa, your MasterCard, obviously your PayPal wallet, and now Bitcoin, right? That was like the big sort of add-on. Um, but I, I like to say that, you know, I played a small role in that evolution. What's been interesting to me over the last couple of years is, uh, you know, a lot of companies that didn't originally conceive of themselves as blockchain or crypto companies are finding now that there is an application for what they're doing or a way to do it better that utilizes that tech. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time kind of in the creator economy space. Um, NFTs obviously have really transformed that. But you start thinking about art and music and the way that that gets shared and value gets created and distributed. This is revolutionary there, right? Um, I think increasingly, and, and you probably see this too in your day-to-day, -day, Jeremy, with the companies you're talking with, part of what I love about your business, Paystand, is uh, people don't need to understand the ins and outs of the proofs and you know the math behind how blockchain works to accrue real value from making that shift in their yeah. business. Yeah, now we're there, that we're talking about Paystand, I got a, got a few comments to say there. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I thought I was going to promise the audience like yeah. no shilling or anything like that. <laughs> but, but, but you know, honestly, you know, and, and back to the PayPal, experience right uh and i think when when we when we met jeremy it's it was right after we had tried i think for the sixth or seventh time we had tried to figure out a b2b payments approach right and uh and the reason was obvious right so huge freaking market right uh tens magnitude of 10 times bigger than b2c but we we couldn't figure it out for a variety of reasons, right? Uh, it's hard to sort of tell a Salesforce or a BD force to say that's, you know, making, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of volume in the B2C landscape to say, hey, shift over to B2B, right? Which is very hard to do that organizationally. Uh, and also the business model, the distribution model, the whole product strategy just was, it was built for B2C, right? It was very hard to then switch shift. So, and then back to the, you know, sort of the, the cloud analogy, right? Um, one of the other reasons why that's an interesting lens to look at it th through is because what cloud allow was, it allowed you to rethink business models and allow you to rethink distribution models, right? And so if you can lower your distribution costs or your acquisition costs, then you can rethink, you know, my, my sort of um, average contract value, uh, do I want to charge, you know, one time a year or subscription model, which is, now the sort of sort of the go-to model, but that was allowed because of the sort of the cloud, the, the scalability that cloud technology brought to you, right, as a company. And I think that blockchain is doing that. And so my first sort of uh, one of the first aha moments was when I when I learned about Paystand, right? When I thought about can you address B two B with a different business model from a different
different infrastructure standpoint. And I thought blockchain was just a very smart way of approaching it. And back, I, back then, I, you know, I believe, um, I, you know, I, I always tell people that I think, you know, Paystand is the largest enterprise application of blockchain. But I think back then it was probably the first uh, that really tried to uh, to leverage blockchain technology to try to crack the B2B payments puzzle. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of when I met you, I was <laughs> I, I was thinking to like, man, you know, why, why can't we make it work? Uh, and, you know, so um, uh, full circle there again. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's wild. You know, and I think the, um, you know, back, go back to the enterprise side, right? Like we see so many enterprises that are now aware, right? And then the question is now, how do you engage, right? Kind of like cloud was early, even how the internet maybe was when I got my career started, like in the late nineties, it was like, clearly it was going to do something, but you know, how does a bookstore engage with the internet? Well, e-commerce, right? And so I think I think there's this big question of what, what's the engagement model for, for for institution? What's the engagement model for the enterprise? What's the engagement model for users, right? And that's the part that's really early, right? Where so, you know, you have, um, you know, everything from, you know, the, the Facebooks of the world, right? Trying to, trying to build kind of their own engagement model around cross-border. You have the Walmarts of the world, right? Which have um, work that they're doing on the supply chain on one side and then adding um, ATMs, like digital asset ATMs in in stores, right? So I think a lot of folks are trying to figure out the engagement model. Um, ultimately, the value is what wins. Like, how can we build things that are better, cheaper, faster, and more efficient? Um, and hopefully that's a little bit of what this this podcast will show the audience is there's a lot of really, really like well-built new tech that's out there that's actually changing things behind the scenes and just not in front, right? Whether it's in gaming, right? RubyCoin full circle. Now like gaming is a massive, massive space. And you know, it, it also goes back to like the original sort of promise of what blockchain could do, right? And one of the biggest sort of challenges with payments is the fact that you had this sort of ad valorem tax, right? Like a percentage of volume and a plus a fixed fee on transactions. It made it very difficult to then think about, well, what if I wanted to do microtransactions, right? And microtransactions were all, always like, just like too expensive to really do uh, in a feasible manner uh, with the you know, legacy infrastructure. And so now you have uh, blockchain that could be, you know, uh, uh, you can divide it up to, you know, sort of eight decimal points. You can, it could be anywhere in the world. It could be really Real time, uh, and so you can lower the cost dramatically and allow for things like microtransactions, right? Um, but then we got into like the issues with gas fees, and there were always like these other issues to like really think through. Um, and I, I'm, I'm happy that we're now really starting to solve a lot of these, I would say, structural issues that are going to allow for the true like promise of this technology, right? Uh, so one of them was just the uh, you know lowering the cost, lowering the barriers to entry. But but really, I think what what's sort of powering all this innovation is the fact that it's decentralized, right? And I think that at the end of the day, that is the magic here, right? That it allowed for the transfer of value in a decentralized manner without a sort of uh, central intermediary that held all the keys. Uh, and so I think when we think about sort of uh, Megan's point of the people part of this, we have to make sure like we're, uh, we understand who the innovators are and what the intentions are and what the impact and you know, what demographics, et, et cetera. Uh, but, but we're starting to see some really interesting uh, use cases, right? That are leveraging this like decentralized framework to bring value where to parts of the world where like misunderstood or, or underinvested or underserved. Uh, and to me, like that's what's, what's really fascinating Right, so I think um, uh, I'm happy to hear all about all these use cases coming about now. We're looking at cases where um, the infrastructure in the U.S. or places where it's, it's well built might not actually be the first places that these things get to economy scale, right? So um, you know, you, Romans, given your background and my background, right, like in places like Latham, um, you know, you, you see in financial infrastructure that, quite frankly, just doesn't exist, right? And so um, it's not surprising that those are some of the first places, whether they're high inflation countries or low banked uh, places. 
cases. So like, you know, how, how do you guys think about, you know, the the least of these, the most, you know, undemocratic uh, spots, whether it's El Salvador now that has, you know, more wallets out there in three months than bank accounts, right? In in like 30 years, you know, how, how are you thinking about both just like deploying capital and just in general, like what that's going to do to those the emerging markets? You know, I wish my mom was alive to see this. So my father uh, is and his, all his family is from Mexico. My mother and all her family is from El Salvador. So this, this close, this hit close to home. And, um, you know, when, when, as the way the president sort of, uh, presented this to the, you know, his citizens were, or to the world was like, we know there are millions of dollars that are sent from the U S uh, back to their families in you know, El Salvador and other countries like it. Right. But in El Salvador, what happens is on uh, the U S side, the center side, right. Western union or MoneyGram or w- whatever remittance you know, sort of network you use, uh, they charge a tax, right. It could be 5%, 10%. Um, but it, you know, if it's cash intensive, which a lot of these uh, countries still are, and, and especially uh, the receiver that sent that's receiving money back from the U.S. typically is very low income under bank or unbanked. So they go into their local sort of retailer uh, and they cash out and that cash becomes untraceable, uh, really hard to tax. And then if it's a cash intensive society, they probably spend it in a place that accepts cash. And again, very hard to trace. So that's like millions and millions of dollars that, that, that uh, the, you know, the government w- would sort of want to, um, to, to track, to tax, but ultimately also to uh, then use data on so that they can, you know, we hope, right, you can, they can use that tax revenue to then redirect it to sort of some programs that go to the ones that need it the most. Uh, and the thought process there or the claim is that, look, we just don't know, we, just, we don't have data on it. So we don't know who's, who's receiving money, how much they're receiving, what, you know, what, how can we help them? Um, and so, um, look, let's see if it ultimately kind of trickles down and sort of um, helps the people who need, you know, need the most help, but at least there's now data. And at least there, you know, this, this user is not getting taxed on both sides, right? So Western Union on the, on the front end or, or, you know, the, the sort of the remittance on the sender side, it's already taxing the, uh, a piece of the economics. So now you could hopefully avoid the second piece because it drops into your, they call it uh, the Chivo app, right? Chivo is a, uh, it's a way of seeing money in El Salvador. It goes into your Chivo app and then you can retain it there until you're ready to spend um, and then hopefully more and more merchant outlets start accepting it. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating like use case and it's such a small country to take such a, a, a you know, bold stance. Um, I don't think it'd be the last, right. And, and I think when you think about LATAM, um, there are some real, uh, real, real problems around the financial inclusion issues. Uh, absolutely. When you think about diversity issues within financial inclusion, right? You're more than likely going to be unbanked if you're poor, if you're, you know, female, if you're a single sort of, um, you know, parent household, there's just all these metrics that show like it's just the systems against you or it's just it's so difficult to navigate. And so I, um, we hope that things like blockchain and Bitcoin uh, enable countries that, that have financial inclusion issues to to bring more banking services. But, you know, I, I just think it's the first of many. If you look at the countries that is growing the fast, right? Fastest right now, it's oftentimes, you know, so it's LATAM, it's Venezuela, Venezuela, right? It's Nigeria, right? These are economies that are that are less, you know, let's call them stable, right? With currencies that are less stable. And so, um, you know, part of that one might say is, is it's inflation driven. And then at the same time, you also have like new, entirely new ways to capitalize companies, right? With with all of this token economics. Um, and so, so how does that kind of play into to VC, right? How does that, you know, whether it's on one side, there's ways to capitalize business, so there's more choice for operators. Um, and then and then there's democratizing it, right? Like, 
like maybe accessed into um, capital where, you know, certain places that are underrepresented couldn't get to Silicon Valley before. Um, and then there's just the token economics question, right? Which is like, you know, how do firms even, you know, um, uh, capitalize decentralized apps that might not actually have normal equity, but have token as a component. So like, how does this all, we're talking about a disrupting business and society, but like, what is it, what does it do to VC? Look, I think when you think about, uh, oh, like as investors, we want to invest where the value is, right? Where value is being created. Um, and so you can think about a lot of use cases, but I think one that I, I, I sort of the simplest to understand is when you invest in a credit based company, you know, a company that's giving credit to businesses or to individuals, um, the value there is the actual, the loan and the repayment of that loan, right? And so whether it's on balance or off balance sheet, uh, it makes a lot of sense to be, to invest in the equity because the loan, the actual loan servicing of, of, of that business is worth a lot of the value is. What happens when that's decentralized and all of a sudden it's the individuals that own uh, the tokens, right? And so by, through the token sale, you then finance the balance sheet that you know, that lends out to customers. And then the repayment goes event essentially back to the token holders that changes where the value is generated, right? And so as an investor, you think, well, where is the value? Is it on the equity of the company uh, or is it in the underlying token, right? And it's because the, the utility of this is where is, is where the value is, is being created. And so it, it definitely, you know, changes sort of the dynamics. And that's just one use case, but across the board, we're looking at it in terms of where's the value re being generated. And so a lot of the companies when they end up doing is still hold 10, 20% or more of the underlying tokens. And so as there's more utility and, you know, the, the token economics, uh, you know, grow, uh, you know, you also benefit from owning the equity in the parent company because they have a large chunk of the tokens. And so, but it, it definitely changes your, you know, the calculation, the calculus around where should I invest? Should I invest in both? How much in each one? Uh, and it just, it varies by model, right? But I, I do think it's an added sort of complexity to the investor world. And so you're seeing a lot of very smart investors, uh, definitely smarter than me that go in and say, hey, we're specialized in crypto and blockchain and and a lot of what they're doing to add value to their shareholders is is this calculus between do we want to own tokens versus equity and what's the split um and so they think they can generate extra alpha so you know we all identify blockchain as a secular trend that's great and and so they come in and say well i also think that the token economics is where it's, you know the value is at and so um that's another sort of edge that investors like that can have we're in this mess we're in today in big tech and just in tech nvc in general where there's a true lack of diversity right and i think we're in, maybe we we've seen it for a while, but I think now we're finally just accepting it. It's a big, big deal. It's a big problem. There's a lot of value for the economy that's being left on the table. And I feel like one of the reasons why is when we saw this amazing sort of the shift to web 2.0, right? And the shift to cloud was happening. This was not a topic of discussion, right? It was not a topic of who are, who, who's going to build the new sort of cloud technologies and new uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, big tech companies of the future. And so we allowed it to happen, you know, and because it just wasn't, it just wasn't a priority. That's not the case now, right? It, it's a priority. It's a priority. We know even in the, you know, political agenda, this is a priority, but, but from the actual industry landscape, you know, tech companies are finally talking about it and accepting it. VCs are talking and accepting it. Uh, capital providers or LPs that, you know, frankly, uh, have a lot of, uh, I, I think, a lot of pull in, in, this, in this conversation um, are talking about it. And I, and, and I almost feel like, you know, not on our watch, right? Like we are talking about this now. We know that Web 3.0 is being built. How can we do our part to ensure that, um, you know, if blockchain is going to tackle some of the world's biggest challenges, that we have the best people on the table, regardless of how they look, where they come from. Um, and so we, you know, we 
have to make sure that we're doing our part to fund diverse founders because that brings diverse thought, every aspect, and that's what we're going to need to solve the problems of financial inclusion uh, and, and you know other other big world problems. And so I think um, uh, you know right on. I feel like hopefully we learn from the mistakes that that we that, that you know cloud also showed us, which was um, you know we just we just didn't think about it at that point in time. And right now that's not the case. Yeah, I mean I, I think the democratizing access to capital is one of the big levers that there is, right? Like it sounds really touchy feely, but the the reality is if you want more contributors to the economy, you need more access to capital. So an underrepresented uh, person, whether they're an immigrant or from a different country that's you know a slower growth country, or whether you know they're just um, traditionally left behind, um, access to capital is how those people can be the masters of their own destiny, in my, my opinion. Starting more companies, which then uh, you know create more value to the economy, which then create more jobs, which then replicate more access to you know more diverse employee base, which then creates sort of this self-perpetuating cycle. So the capital access is actually the, one of the key levers. And that's one of the big things, you know, going back to even the, the venture side, democratizing Silicon Valley, which I think in some ways is some of the things that ha- that's happening right now, um, it is, is a massive opening. And then you're right to the, to the, you know, blockchain side, so much is going on with new financial inclusion. Like that can happen anywhere in the world with any level of technology now in Web 3.0. So it's super exciting time. So with that, guys, thanks for the time. That was uh, awesome. Uh, Roman, Meg, that was great. I think it's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Roman, thank you so, so much for being here. Um, You've been a fantastic guest. It's been a great conversation. For those listening, uh, if you want to learn more about the awesome work Roman's doing, you can feel free to follow him on Twitter, Roman T. Leal, or uh, look up his firm, Leap Global Partners, uh, follow all the great work that they're up to. Thanks. Thanks.